Hello, everybody. I'm Pam Pastor, host of the Grace and Peace of God Love Wins podcast, and I am thrilled that you found me. There is power in the name of Jesus. As we journey together, we will unleash discoveries of how to turn a heart of stone into one of moldable clay for the potter to transform. I hope you'll join me and others each week as we adventure and explore life together. Periodically, we'll delve into my mailbag and answer questions from listeners just like you. If you have a question, make sure and email it to me at pampastorcopywriting at gmail.com. And today we're going to be exploring Jesus on trial. Now, hatred and unforgiveness are equal to spiritual murder in God's kingdom. Scripture teaches loving our brothers and sisters proves that we have passed from death to eternal life. When we harbor unforgiveness and hate, our hearts have committed spiritual murder. Because we cannot see a physical manifestation and the damage, it becomes easy to excuse it with thoughts such as, well, time heals all wounds, or eventually this will be reconciled and all will be restored. Friends, the time is now to put our differences aside and see God in all of his creation. The second greatest commandment is like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. And your neighbor encompasses any other Christian brother or sister. Proximity knows no boundaries. It's in our actions that we will know if we are truly loving others, if we're living in the truth of the Holy Spirit, He'll reveal to us in the outside world and our light will shine brightly as we go forth. We'll have a servant's heart. Serving others doesn't mean a grandiose event. When we serve others, it simply means pay attention to those around us. How can we help to lighten their load? Can we offer to pick something up at the grocery store? Can we bring their trash cans in from the street? Can we simply smile and say hello with a blanket of kindness radiating out from within us? Each person has numerous daily opportunities to reflect Jesus to others just by working out the gifts he has placed within us. We're all called to plant seeds, and Jesus ultimately has the responsibility to help turn those seeds into fruit among his children. When we live our lives this way, we're walking in fellowship with God and one another. Let's agree today to not allow the bitter root of unforgiveness to take hold in our spirit. When we recognize Christianity as a religion of the heart, we'll do what scripture teaches and guard our hearts with all diligence as out of it are the spring the issues of life. Our very essence and core of our being is brought forth under trials and adversity. Scriptures say in Proverbs, if you faint in the day of adversity, then your strength is small. Let's explore the differences between real Christianity and anything else. When we choose love over hatred, forgiveness over unforgiveness, the new covenant over the old covenant, love for the Father or love of this world, Jesus Christ versus the Antichrist, truth or lies, children of God or children of the devil, eternal life or eternal death, true prophecy or false prophecy, love over fear, having life or not having life. 
Light over darkness, good over evil. These ways please the Lord. He then makes our enemies live at peace with us. Unfailing love covers all sin. When we operate from a position of humility, our Creator can recast us into the mold that He created. We are His clay that will be continuously reworked and massaged until the day our spirits travel from this world into the heavenly realm. Oftentimes, just when we think we've mastered life, a bump emerges from the clay and gives opportunity to rework, reshape, and smooth out the rough edges. Jesus' word promises he will never leave us nor forsake us. So in these few short earthly years, our mission is to fulfill his purpose for our lives. He succinctly tells us in the book of Matthew, To fulfill the Great Commission, there's no other job or occupation on earth greater than expanding the reach and breadth of Jesus Christ and winning souls for the heavenly kingdom. This is the ultimate goal for each of us. Jesus gives us a blueprint for forgiveness. When we analyze and evaluate the trial of Jesus, we can see just how illegal it was. The book of Isaiah tells us that the Lord will reveal his saving power. Jesus bore the sins of many and interceded for sinners. And did you know even today Jesus is our intercessor? He takes our prayers to the Father. He articulates them in the language of love and understanding. Jesus wants the best for us. He is our advocate. He tells us in the book of Isaiah, his thoughts are completely different than our thoughts. His ways are far beyond anything we could ever imagine. This should strengthen our faith as we recognize God's ways are always worked outside the boxed-in limited thinking of our small solutions. He's able to see all sides of every situation. He had the answers before our challenges or our problems ever presented themselves. So what then made Jesus' trial illegal? Great question. The outcome was predetermined before the trial began. It had been determined that Jesus must die. This wasn't a should, but instead it was an absolute imperative. Jesus was not tried on innocent until proven guilty by his accuser's basis. And yet it's interesting to remember he was cheered upon entering the city of Jerusalem when the crowds were shouting, Hosanna in the highest or the equivalent of peace to all. They thought he was there to usher in his kingdom. Man's fickle allegiance would turn and shout, crucify him only five days later when his power appeared to have been broken. Under routine circumstances, the high council acted as the religious leaders of the day. The high council was the most powerful religious and political body of Jewish people. They would screen witnesses to ensure justice, but not with Jesus. They sought false witnesses who would testify and distort some of Jesus' teachings. Jesus was not offered or afforded a defense. The prophet Isaiah said he opened not his mouth. He didn't even attempt to defend himself. In times of suffering, people often wish they knew the future, or better yet, what the reason was for the suffering and anguish. Jesus knew what he was facing and the path he was traveling to get there. 
He knew the reason, yet his struggle was so intense that he prayed, My father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will, not mine. What would it take for us to say we want the father's will, not ours? We must firmly trust in God's plan for our lives, not our own. We must follow God's ways each step as he guides us, remembering it is Jesus who is the object of our faith. The Romans had taken away the high council's authority to crucify someone, so they had to come up with a reason to do so. Politically, it looked better to blame someone else for killing Jesus anyway. By making Jesus' death appear to be Roman-sponsored, the crowds couldn't hate the high council. Remember the high council or Jewish leaders had arrested Jesus for blasphemy, but this charge wouldn't stick. It was an arrest based on theological grounds, but it was thrown out of the Roman court. A political charge was needed. It was decided the charge would be that Jesus was a rebel and direct threat to Caesar. The religious leaders' own rules forbid trials to be conducted at night. Yet Jesus' trial did just that. This was illegal according to their own law. The high priest placed Jesus under oath. Jesus declared his royalty by stating he is the Son of Man. This claim meant he was and is the Messiah. By declaring this, he knew it would be his ending on earth. To the Jews, this was the ultimate crime punishable by death. Finally, we note Jesus' serious charge against him should have only been tried in the high council's regular meeting space, but instead it was done in the high priest's palace. The high council and Romans both proved that they were not interested in giving Jesus a fair trial. They didn't protect the justice they had been elected to uphold and protect. Instead, they were driven by blind ambition. Revelation chapter 3 verse 5 tells us, For Christians who are not ashamed of Christ during their earthly life will be acknowledged by Christ before the Father and before the angels in heaven. Their names will never be blotted out from the book of life. There's one absolute in this world, and that is the certainty of death. The one common equalizer of mankind occurred at the foot of the cross when Jesus Christ was crucified. For people who choose to believe in Christ, his words reveals, He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The second death is eternal separation from God. Why is God so opposed to people participating in any way, shape, or form in the occult, even in times of suffering? First, man forgets who's on the throne in heaven when they do so. Man attempts to void God's status as creator of the world without physically scourging and flogging Jesus and dragging him, carrying the cross to Calvary. We minimize the massive love he has for his creation. We unapologetically state, Lord, trusting you is not enough. We have it figured out. Stay tuned. This is the epitome of a disobedient spirit. How are we subverted into following false teachings? 
Satan knows the Bible inside and out. He's had thousands of years to work with the text and plan his strategy for each of God's children. Because Eve believed Satan, who was manifested as the serpent in the Garden of Eden and fell from a sinless existence into one of sin, we too are not exempt. Before Eve believed the lie, both she and Adam communed daily with God in the garden. Their minds were clear and free of condemnation. Their souls danced with aliveness. But when Satan caused Eve and Adam to enter into sin with a question about one command God had given them, it was over. Life as they knew it ceased to exist. The beauty figuratively turned to ash. Satan used the ploy or tactic, God will be jealous if they became like him. In this moment, a shift in Eve's mindset occurred. She went from obeying God to open rebellion, and man has struggled with sin ever since. Satan works overtime in tempting God's people. We'll always have the choice to remain humble and obedient, seeking wisdom from God, or exalting ourselves, not waiting for the due time when God would exalt us. Do you ever notice Satan leaves non-believers alone? He knows they already belong to his family lineage. And God promised Moses and the people another prophet like him. In the century prior to the coming of Jesus, this was often a lively discussion. Of course, it would be revealed that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the one predicted. He was all of these attributes, prophet, priest, king, sage, and suffering servant. And ultimately, he was and is the Messiah, otherwise known as Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. God would put his words into Jesus' mouth to speak. Jesus would do all that was commanded of him. When a person has an intimate relationship with their Creator God, they inherently know nothing else can usurp that space in their core being. This one relationship defies all odds. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one accesses his Father except through him. Additionally, John chapter 5 verse 22 tells us God granted all judgment to the Son. If we unpack the gospel or the good news at a high level, here's where we are so far. God loved the world so much he gave his one and only begotten Son. Jesus is merciful to believers. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the shepherd who leads us. The Pharisees love to witness miracles as evidence and proof of the supernatural. Jesus told the Pharisees, before Abraham, I am. This was confusing. Jesus was in his early 30s, yet he was saying he was older than Abraham. Jesus was saying before his birth at Bethlehem, he existed eternally. Jesus went on to tell the Pharisees, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. When we know who Christ really is and who we are in Christ, we will never seek out the occult for esoteric knowledge or power in our times of suffering. Isaiah provides us with more spiritual insights. First, look at the name Isaiah. It means Yahweh is salvation. 
His book is filled with judgment and hope. When a person claims they're Christian, their life will align with that profession of faith. Isaiah shows us in chapter 8, verse 19, the only method for gleaning wisdom and knowledge comes from God's word. It is inconsistent to seek knowledge from another source when the Holy Spirit is directing our lives. In 1 Samuel, the law restricted anyone in Israel from having anything to do with occult rituals that attempted to speak with dead spirits and receive oracles concerning future events. The penalty, if caught, was death. King Saul experienced excruciating terror similar to walking on earth alone, not a part of God's family. Saul needed answers for battle but was outside of God's will for his life. He sought God in the wrong way with a wrong heart attitude. Therefore, God was silent in his answer. It's possible to know about God your entire life, but it's not the same as having a personal relationship with him. The Lord was silent towards Saul. The impending battle would position David against the Philistines. At this point, humility and the sight of God would have been recommended for Saul. Instead, he sought out a medium known as the Witch of Endor, knowing full well his request was against the law that he enacted. Saul promised her no punishment would come against her for this thing. Saul would die the next day for his unfaithfulness. David was the predecessor to Saul's throne. When we consult the unknown in an attempt to circumvent God's word and will in our life, it only causes harm. God has a plan for our life, which includes mysteries. His word says in Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 3, Call to me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Wow, what a promise. Call directly to our creator and he'll reveal secrets that are unknown to us. Yes, that's right. That's what that verse means. God promises his children many blessings, but we must ask for them using the vehicle of prayer to actualize them. People who trust God's promises, provision, protection, and perpetuity recognize his sovereign power reigns and will stay away from all occult practices. The prophet Samuel likened rebellion to the same as the sin of divination. This is a vain attempt to gain knowledge supernaturally or influence events. The prophet Samuel said, Seeking these practices is equal to rebellion against God. Man in the occult is man in rebellion. Whether he realizes it or not, he's involved in a seditious effort to throw off the absoluteness of the yoke of God's sovereignty and position himself at a higher level in the government of the universe. And isn't this exactly what Satan did? They say Satan's playground is the earth for now. Ultimately, Satan, the false prophet, and the Antichrist, or the fake trinity, all end up in the fiery lake of fire for eternity. The soil of Satan is rooted in the sin of pride. Satan will not change if he can falsely deceive people into believing they too can have the wisdom, power, and knowledge of God. They may opt in for it never realizing how dire the consequences for doing so. The rebellion against God cannot be dimensionalized. 
God says to come before the throne with childlike innocence. When we seek idols in life for answers, God says this is the spiritual equivalent to committing adultery against God. Christ is over the church as the bridegroom, and we are his bride. Idol worship or any other oracles is rebellion against God. Behind these forms of worship is the real and living demonic power we're commanded to stay away from. How are we to stand in victory against Satan and his evil principalities? We're to embrace the peace of Christ through faith. By grace, we've been given the gift of faith and stand on the word of God. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 had this had that to say. So let's unpack what that scripture verse is actually telling us. It says lust represents desire or the inward part of temptation or wanting one's own way. Lust of the eyes is greed, envy, and extravagance. Lust of the flesh is equal to physical temptations, especially sexual sin. Pride of life is an arrogant desire to be recognized. It's often associated with wealth or position and the desire to appear important so that others will be jealous. And we know in the kingdom of God that wealth, position, and authority hold no status. Satan tempted Adam and Eve and Jesus in these ways, and he uses the same tactics over and over in his attempts to turn every believer away from God. Oftentimes we criticize Judas Iscariot for his betrayal of Jesus, and yet we know without Judas's betrayal, there would be no crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. What's the purpose in sharing all of this with you? It's simple. If Jesus can forgive this grave miscarriage of human injustice, don't you think we can forgive our neighbor? Friends, today, if you want to become a child of God and spend eternity in heaven, not elsewhere, then I invite you to pray this prayer of invitation to our Lord Jesus Christ. Simply repeat after me. Lord Jesus, I repent and turn away from my sins. Come in and take up resonant as the president within my heart. I believe your blood was shed for all who believe that you alone took on the sins of humanity, past, present, and future, at the foot of the cross of Calvary. Amen. And friends, if you prayed that prayer of salvation with me, I believe you were saved and born again spiritually. Let me be the first to offer you congratulations on the most important decision that you have ever made. Congratulations. Your next step is to read God's word daily so he can guide, direct, and reveal himself to you and find other Bible-based believers to surround yourself with. And today, as you go back to your routine, I pray the priestly blessing and benediction over you. It's from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show his favor and give you his peace. Amen. And friends, much of today's podcast for the grace and peace of God, Love Wins, came directly out of my book. And if you're interested in more of that content, you can purchase my book at Amazon, 
www.pampastorcopywriting.com, my website, pampastorcopywriting.com, Barnes and Noble, or you can go to dorance.com as well. And till next time, be blessed. <laughs>